Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. If you do not have your Bible, uh, then the words are going to be projected on the screen. And there is a copy of the Bible in the pew in front of you. Unless you're sitting in the back corner, in which case, I have it. So you won't be able to find it. Uh, I biked up this morning and left my Bible at home. So I'm using the Pew Bible, and I'm slightly depressed to see how brand new it is and how little it has ever been handled. So actually, I'm going to take it as a good sign. It means that everyone who sits back there always brings their own. So that's a good thing. Luke chapter 11, uh, we're going to read verses 14 through 28. This is the word of God. Jesus was driving at a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Well, before we start unpacking this section together, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the ability to gather uh, here together to honor you, to praise you. We thank you that you are a mighty fortress. You are a stronghold, a shield, and a sword. We thank you that you protect us. And Lord, in even reading this passage, we are reminded that we do in fact need protection. We need you to guard us. We need you to hedge us in. We thank you that we, you have given us your own armor, the armor of God that we can wear. And we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need to resist the devil by your grace given to us in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we thank you, and we honor you this morning for the great gift of salvation. I pray that you will help us to marvel in it. I pray that you will help us to never get past the awe and the wonder that a God as great and as exalted as you are would save sinners like us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you will open your word, give us wisdom and understanding, uh, help us to live it out in ways that are pleasing and honoring to you. And Father, we pray also this morning, uh, we remember in a special way uh, those who are sick and those who are not able to be here. Uh, We pray for those who have heavy hearts, those who are grieving. Uh, Father, we pray that you will comfort them and give them the strength that they need. Help them to feel your presence. And Lord, we want to remember Uh, Phil and Jess and their three children, Lord, with all of the the joy and the strain that uh, the early birth of Tobias brings into their reality, we just pray that you will be their rock, uh, that you will give them strength and encouragement. I pray that you will also give them uh, a great measure of love and peace and joy. Uh, I pray that they will be able to treasure uh, these weeks. I pray that Tobias will grow and develop in a healthy way. Uh, I pray that he will be a joy uh, to all who know him as he grows older and older. And Father, we would be so bold as to pray that in your grace, and thank you that you have given him uh, birth, but Lord, we pray that as as early as his physical birth was, we pray that at an even earlier stage you will cause him to be born again. Uh, we pray that he will come to know you from the earliest moments of his life, to walk with you by the Spirit, and to be a witness in this world for your truth. Be with us, we pray. Uh, enrich our time for your honor. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I did not intend uh, to be away for the last three Sundays. I intended uh, to be away for two out of the last three Sundays, uh, one in Cuba, and then this last one a week ago uh, at Elam Lodge near Peterborough, and the one in the middle. Uh, I was fully anticipating on being here, but uh, in Cuba, as I'm sure most of you know uh, by now, uh, my iron constitution and incredible physique was tested by some kind of Cuban contamination, <laughs> and uh, I, I succumbed. Uh, the plane arrived Saturday morning at 1.30 in the morning in Pearson. I got to the hotel about 2.30 in the morning, and, uh, and by breakfast, even the... I went down for breakfast, and I wasn't feeling very well, and I had been sick for a couple days, not, not too bad. And even, even the manager of the buffet at the hotel didn't charge me full price. <laughs> when he, saw, he said, is that all you're going to eat? And I said, I, I think I'm done. And so uh, for the next uh, 48 hours, I was pretty sick, uh, not able to be here on the Sunday. Uh, we thank the Lord for giving uh, gifts to people. I was able to contact Jake uh, Saturday night pretty late, and he was able to, to come and to open the Word of God uh, two weeks ago. We thank the Lord for that. Uh, besides being sick, which I never enjoy. And this is one of the things that uh, is sort of a window into missions. Uh, missionaries don't like being sick. Like, there's nothing sort of romantic or fulfilling about being sick 
on the mission field. And so, I mean, every time I've gone overseas to teach, uh, I've gotten sick every time. And this was the worst one. In God's grace, it's never affected my teaching times. So I was able to still sort of get through all of my lecture hours. Uh, I was there, you're not, you don't know, I was there teaching a course on New Testament theology. Uh, there's about 25 Cuban pastors and some others who were part of the class. And so what you're teaching them, you know, is then going to be taught in all these different churches. I was able actually Sunday to go to a house church and be part of that. Uh, very interesting. It was a really rich time. And uh, before I left, they had to take an exam about the course material I'd been teaching and their marks were excellent. I was actually uh, very impressed, almost leading towards shocked that they did as well as they did. And so there was an obvious, a real aptitude and ability. Uh, they were hungry. They learned very quickly. They retained. And so I was very, very pleased uh, with how they were able to do. And so in that sense, from a teaching perspective, from a kingdom perspective, absolutely well worthwhile. And then we know over the next year and more, uh, these 25 pastors and others, they are going to be teaching their churches some of this material. They're going to be teaching them some of the things that we were talking about from the New Testament. And so that's just a wonderful thing. And I want to thank you uh, for your prayers. Uh, maybe next time pray a little harder that I don't get sick. Uh, that would be helpful. Uh, we can add that to the prayer list. Uh, but your prayers, uh, financial support, everything that you did uh, to help me uh, go down there. And in that sense, I'm the one who goes, but it's our church that has that ministry. It's not, it's not just me. It's all of us. And we work together as one body. And whether you were here praying or whether, you know, you were getting sick, that would have only been me. Uh, it's, it's all of us. It's the body of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I will say this now. I wasn't going to, but I will say this now. Something else though to remember. Uh, and, and be in prayer, because I, I see the value and the need of teaching around the world. And I've been in different places. Uh, I've been asked to do, you know, sort of, it's endless, because there's so many opportunities. Uh, next year, I've been asked to go to Malawi, which is a place I've always wanted to go, and teach in one of their Bible colleges. There's a student there who, uh, when he was in Africa, I helped supervise him from a distance when he was doing his dissertation. And so now he's in a leadership role at uh, this Bible college in Malawi, and he wants me to come over uh, teach and then help them shape their curriculum. And I've tried to tell him I have I'm not qualified to shape curriculum, but he doesn't believe me. Uh, so uh, looking looking at that as a possibility. But one of the things actually coming back from Cuba, I'm trying to evaluate because I I just think it's a matter of time before I go and I actually get so sick I can't I can't teach because every time I go uh, and it seems to be getting worse. So I'm trying to evaluate how do we how do we balance this. Um, but the need is so great. So if you would be uh, in prayer for that. Now, uh, the, the other thing I'll, I'll mention about Cuba, just to give you a little bit of an idea. It's not as, there is persecution. It's not as bad as it has been. There's, there was a shift in Cuba in the 1990s. Uh, so there is a little bit more religious freedom. I mean, in the revolution era, so going back to the 1960s, they, they rounded up a lot of the pastors and put them in work camps put them in concentration camps. So it's not that type of persecution now. But as one of the pastors was telling me, he said, you know, I, I can't get a loan at the bank uh, because I'm a pastor. They, they will not give me money. Uh, and there's two other people. One was a high school teacher who was fired from his job 
uh, because he wouldn't lie on certain reports. And the administration said, well, you, you're either going to sort of basically falsify the data or you're out of here. And as a Christian, he said, well, I can't do that. So they fired him. Uh, there was another man who's a pastor who had become qualified as a lawyer in terms of education, and the bar wouldn't give him his credentials because he was a Christian. Uh, the pastor's wife in the house church where I went had spent six years in university training to be a medical doctor. One month before her graduation, the school said, unless you sign on to the communist statement of faith, we won't give you your degree. And so six years, one month shy of being a doctor. And just try to make, just try to imagine what that would be like if that was your daughter or you or your family. Six years, all that time and investment, and because of your faith, nothing. So those are the sorts of situations uh, that these people are working with, daily realities. And yet there's a joy in the Lord, there's a desire to learn, and it makes me wonder, I mean, what, what do I do? Actually, I shared it at Elam Lodge where I was speaking this last week. Nancy, I, I, I mentioned, I said, you know what, like, I, so I'm down in Cuba and this is what they're facing. And, and my persecution is I have to come to this campground, you know, get a lovely time with my family and, and teach and preach the word of God. Like, like, that's not a hardship. Like, my life is immeasurably improved by the opportunities that the Lord gets me and actually gives me. And it's actually funny. We were walking down uh, towards the dining hall. Uh, and, uh, the food's always excellent at these, at these places. And, and one of our friends, as we're going, going to supper, he's like, oh, so you're going down to the dining hall for dinner? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, I'm jealous of your persecution. <laughs> and that's exactly the way it is, though. Uh, but do pray for the safety as you travel. But also, these, these camps, if you listen to a lot of people, these camps really are sort of their spiritual highlight for the year. Uh, I spoke eight times uh, this last week uh, to the staff once and then seven times uh, to the camp, then a one-hour question and answer period uh, Friday morning. And for a lot of people, they come to get away, and I don't know what it is about camps, but there seems to be a dynamic there in terms of hunger and openness to the Word of God, and it's just the, it, it's not just the week. It, that week somehow is disproportionate in the year, and it's such a blessing in the lives of people. So two weeks from now, Lord William, I'm scheduled to speak at uh, Muskoka Bible Conference up in Huntsville. And so just remember us because it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to open the Word of God. All right. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning, too. And you're pretty familiar with this section, likely in verses 14 uh, through 28. Uh, it's interesting. Verse 14 says that the demon was mute. So I don't know quite what... I don't quite know what that means in terms of speech patterns in the demonic realm. Uh, but here is this demon who is mute, and the mute demon makes the man mute as well. And Jesus casts out the evil spirit. Now, at this point, whenever you're sort of working systematically through the gospel as we are, you always need to stop. You need to ask yourself, well, what what are we learning that's new about Jesus in this event. Why does the gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write this? 
And in some ways, it is a little bit confusing because we've already seen multiple times when we're told that Luke, or Luke tells us that Jesus cast out evil spirits. So we're not learning that Jesus can cast out evil spirits. We already know that. So that's not contributing anything to our knowledge. In fact, in the second half of Luke chapter 8, we've seen that Jesus can cast out a legion of demons, uh, a whole company of the army of hell. And so if he can do that, well, what's what's the big deal with him casting out a, a demon that can't speak? You, you just wonder, why is this included in the narrative? We're not learning that Jesus has power over evil spirits. We already know that. Well, the reason that this is included is because here you see an enormous divide in terms of sort of the exegesis or the hermeneutics of interpreting who Jesus is. See, sometimes we just think, and there are school, uh, schools in the broad sense, not in terms of institutions, but schools of thought that teach that if we can just do enough exotic, powerful, supernatural things, then people will be converted. So if we just speak in tongues and the tongues are interpreted, then people will be impressed by the power of the Spirit of God. Or if we can just go out and we can have power encounters with demons and we can show that Christ is superior to them, then people will be converted. Or if we can you know, go out and we can do all kinds of healing, then people will be converted. And I mean, You understand what people are saying. Because a lot of people in society will say, well, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. Right? Where is your evidence? Show me your proof. Why doesn't God do something right now? Then I will believe in him. But what's fascinating in the Gospels is that the only people who ever request signs are people who've already decided they're not going to believe in Jesus. So that very request shows not that not an openness. It always shows a closedness to the self-revelation of Jesus. Jesus, what you've given me isn't enough. I'll set the terms. Why don't you do this? Then I'll believe. Right? But what the gospels show us is that Jesus did all kinds of healing and people didn't believe. He cast out demons and people didn't believe. He raised the dead and people didn't believe. And so you want to sort of modify this and say, well, I don't know what's changed in terms of the human heart, but Jesus did more miracles than anyone can possibly do in a lifetime, and the crowd still rejected him. Because the show of power can always be interpreted in more than one way if your heart is hard. And it's the same when it comes to worldview, and it's the same when it comes to looking at the world around us. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence. The whole universe cries out in terms of physical science, in terms of ethics, in terms of human nature, in terms of self-consciousness, in terms of intelligence, in terms of aesthetics. The whole universe as a system cries out, there is more than this, there is a God. And people read all of that evidence, they read all of the detail, and they reject God, as Romans 1 says, not because they don't know him, but because they do know him, and they don't want to. They don't want to acknowledge God because if they acknowledge God, then all of a sudden they need to acknowledge the claims of God on their life. And so the rebellion is ethical, not intellectual. And so the ethical rebellion that gets manifested in people being very clever and using their intellect to rationalize why they don't believe in God. But the rationalization always is subsequent 
It's always, it's always comes after the ethical heart stands, which is I don't want to be answerable to God. Then we generate all kinds of reasons why, but it's after the fact. The intellect follows the emotions. Our spiritual uh, rationality follows our heart commitment. And so when people don't want to know God, they simply find lots of reasons to disbelieve in him. Amazingly, that's what happens with Jesus here. So Jesus is casting out evil spirits. And some of his opponents have hearts that are so hard that they are watching Jesus liberate people, free people, heal people, roll back the kingdom of Satan. And they say, well, it's by the power of Satan that he's destroying the kingdom of Satan. You're looking at the same event. But it depends on your heart commitment. That you can even take an exorcism where a demon is cast into the name of Jesus and say, well, the name of Jesus is satanic, right? It's by the power of Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. Beelzebul, of course, means uh, loosely translated as Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. It's it's sort of a, a Jewish way of of being pejorative towards the devil. He's wicked and unclean and useless and foul and nothing, right? And so it's by his power that this man, Jesus, is driving out demons. And then Jesus responds with just some relatively obvious fundamental logic. You know, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? In other words, why would Satan engage in a civil war against himself? This doesn't make any sense. And so obviously Satan isn't going to be destroying his own kingdom. Satan is not going to have a man who's oppressed and possessed by a demon, and then Satan's going to drive that demon out. I mean, why would Satan release his own captives? He, he's, he may be wicked, but he's not dumb in that sense. I mean, he's clever enough to wage strategic warfare, and he's not going to be driving out himself. He's not going to be sending one battalion against another one of his own battalions. Jesus says, just think about it. Why, why would Satan do that? But not only is that the case, there were Jewish exorcists who in the name of God would drive out evil spirits. And so Jesus is basically saying, well, listen, if driving out evil spirits is a mark of being satanic, what about you? What about you guys? Because you guys also drive out evil spirits. And so if driving out evil spirits is a sign that you're operating by the power of Satan, maybe you need to look in the mirror or at least revamp your argument. Well, what should we expect today when it comes to demonic activity? I think this is a very important question. I think if nothing else, there does need to be a recognition that in the time of Jesus, uh, Satan is sort of unleashing all of his power all of his forces. He's, he's pulling out all the stops. And so there is a level of demonic warfare overtly here before the cross because of the special nature of Jesus. Satan is doing anything he can to stop the unrolling of his own kingdom. So I'm not sure. I don't think we should be expecting to see de- demonic activity as overtly as we see it in the Gospels all of the time. I think this is a special moment in redemptive history. However, 
having said that, I do think that there are sort of equal and opposite errors that our churches tend to make when it comes to thinking about the devil and about demons. The one, sort of in a hyper-charismatic environment, is to see demons everywhere. And so every runny nose is caused by a demon. You know, every twinge of anger is caused by a demon, you know, so so if I lose my temper, it's because I was oppressed by the demon of anger. Well, that's all very convenient because then somehow it sort of takes responsibility off of me, you know. On the other hand, I don't think I need that much trouble to lose my patience, you know. I don't think that I need necessarily need demonic influence. I think that I'm enough of a jerk to be able to do that myself, you know. I'm not sure that I need all that much help from the power of darkness, you know, to be impatient, you know, some days. So some people, they see demons everywhere. Everything's demonic. Everything's demon oppression. But the equal and opposite error is is to go through life sort of without it even occurring to you that there really is an adversary who really is bent on destruction and sin and ruin. To go through life really just sort of practically in denial of the spiritual realm. And I think in different cultures and in different eras in history and even in different places around the world today, Satan does operate with different strategies. So there are places, I mean, you talk to enough missionaries, and there, there absolutely are places around the world where there is overt, occultic uh, manifestation and intercourse between people and the spiritual realm. So that there are witch doctors and there are people who work, you know, with demons and, and some of it, some of it is a sham. Yes, it is. And a lot of it isn't. There is a lot of actual work that goes on in this world today between people and the powers of darkness. And they're in places like that. You don't need to go in and say, did you know that there's a supernatural realm? Yes, they know that. Their question is, who is the most powerful God? Who is the most powerful spirit? Right? But there's no denial of, of the demonic. They're well aware of that. So there, in places like that, Satan manifests himself, and the powers of darkness manifest themselves in overt forms to keep people afraid and oppressed. In other places, like Canada... Yes, there are certain individuals, certain pockets where that kind of activity takes place. Yes, there are people in our country who are, without any doubt, oppressed or possessed by by demonic spirits. I'm not denying that for a moment. However, in our society, Satan operates with with a more subtle approach, which is which is absolutely brilliant. He is convinced our whole society to believe the lie that there is no such thing as powers of darkness in the spiritual realms. And so in that sense, why on earth would Satan ever sort of come forward in our society sort of en masse with overt manifestation when the whole society is in denial of his very existence? Because now you can tempt, you can do whatever you want, and people will never, it will never occur to them 
to pray to resist the devil will never occur to them that if there is a demonic evil realm, then maybe there is a counterpart realm of light that if there is a devil and there must be a God who is a creator because Satan's existence is not self-explanatory and all the rest. And so for Satan just to sort of fly underneath the radar in a society is a brilliant strategy. And if that's the case, then for us, we shouldn't expect to see him doing a whole lot to sort of overtly show people that he's alive and well, even in our country. It's a subtle atheism. Now, what Jesus says in verse 20 is this, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, this is obviously the right interpretation of what Jesus is doing. If I drive out demons by the finger of God. That's a very interesting expression. By the finger of God. And if you're in tune sort of to the context and to scripture, you're supposed to go the finger of God. I've heard that before. I've heard that expression. That's a very significant expression. But where? It's a very significant expression in the time of Moses when Moses is confronting the magicians, who uh, Pharaoh's court magicians, who by their secret art can duplicate the first few types of miracles that God has enabled Moses to do. But then Moses does a miracle that the magicians cannot duplicate. And they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, nothing can explain this except a special act of God himself. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, nothing explains Satan's kingdom being rolled back other than the kingdom of God being at work, or the the finger of God being at work. And so if that's the case, if nothing can explain the demons being cast out besides the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God has come here. So Jesus is saying this, listen, if you just have eyes to see and a heart that is not purposefully and intentionally twisting and distorting reality, you will see very obviously that what I am doing can only be ascribed to the power of Almighty God. It is by the finger of God that I am enabled to do this. There's a difference between seeing and seeing. They see the event of the demon being cast out, but they don't see its significance. I'll tell you one story from Cuba. I, I, didn't, I didn't tell Heather this fully. I did tell her driving was a bit of an adventure. So now I'll, I'll share this. So first time I leave the hotel to drive to where I'm teaching. It's about a 40-minute drive through the city and then out on the country. I'm not sure if you've ever been, like, actually in Cuba. Like, there's resort Cuba, which is not Cuba, and then there's Cuba Cuba, where Cuban people actually live. It's an amazing thing. There's a whole other world. And uh, one of the things you find if you actually go into the real Cuba is that uh, cars and gas are so prohibitively expensive that uh, although there are cars on the road and although there are enormous trucks on the road... There are also an equal percentage of bikes and uh, horses, horse-drawn carts. All of these objects move at different velocities. And the roads are so bad that there are potholes and then there are 
bumps and there are no lane markings. So you basically drive and you just pick like the path that's not going to ruin whatever vehicle you're in or like break your horse's leg. So there's a lot of this, like there's really no lanes. Lanes are kind of a theoretical construct, you know, it's just a road. Although it's also, I have to admit, like Pete, I'm not sure if you've ever been into the interior in Cuba. I don't know why you're fooling around with all these like old cars here in Canada because every car is from the 1950s. Like, like literally because of import laws, right? And so, so you go around and then when they put the trade embargoes on, cars aren't coming in and they don't have money to fix the, to buy new ones. So literally it's like a car show. Uh, the taxi that we went in, in the airport, um, it was an automatic, it was a 1956 something, I don't know, it doesn't matter, Buick, Chevy, Ford, whatever. And, you know, and so there, it's an automatic, so it's got the, the gear shift, on the steering column, but they've jerry-rigged it into a standard. So you put the clutch in and you sort of move the gear shift. I'm like, I have no, I drive standard. I have no idea how this is working, but it's not working smooth. And then I sort of looked down and I noticed that not only have they obviously jerry-rigged, you know, the transmission, they also have screwed metal plates into the floor because the whole floor has been rusted out at some point, right? So your your confidence is not exactly high, uh, even though it is kind of cool if you like old cars. Anyway, that's not the point. So I'm driving. I, I get into this car, which is a little a little Kia, uh, to in, and I, I decide to be polite. So I'm going to sit in the back seat. Sit in the back seat. Let another passenger sit up front. Last time I was humble. Uh, so I get in the back seat and I and I go to put on my seatbelt. And literally, both of the guys, passenger and driver, they turn around and they say, oh, you don't need a seatbelt. I said, it's very kind. Uh, I'd like one, right? Uh, because I have been in a car accident and uh, had a broken jaw and all the rest. So I, I like seatbelts. Big believer in them. So I go to put on my seatbelt. And what they could have told me is, you can't put on the seatbelt. Like, it's not an option. It's been like locked somehow behind the seat. So I cannot put it on. Now, that's fine. We start driving. We like to drive fast. To save gas, we like to throw it into neutral, going down hills, like all kinds of fun, quirky stuff, right? And so we're just, we're just going and, uh, there's all these vehicles and horses and, and there was one time, honestly, I'm not an expert on physics, obviously, but, but just with the way everything was coming together, I, I'm sitting in the back seat going, something's getting hit, like horses and, and yet somehow nothing got hit. And I kind of realized towards the end of the week, that we are so regulated in how we drive that there actually is like a common sense logic that they don't want to run into the truck, so they don't. You know, so it's like you do kind of like feel it out, right? I mean, and so actually it wasn't all that bad. Um, but we're driving and then uh, it starts raining. And in islands, it can rain hard. So it's, it starts raining very hard. This makes me a little nervous because we're going pretty quick on the wrong side of the road, up hills and all the rest. So I started thinking, maybe I didn't try hard enough with the seatbelt, right? So I'm sort of sitting there like this, trying to do it subtly, and then I abandon all pretense of being subtle. I'm like, I'm pulling on this thing. It is not going to work. Now, because of the car's condition, the windshield starts fogging up, right? So the guy is driving, wiping the windshield with his hand. 
And now this is, this is not inspiring my confidence. And then there was this moment, or honestly, I, I literally started laughing. So I'm like, this is, this is obviously some sort of horrible satire. See that he's one hand on the wheel, wiping the fog, and his cell phone rings. And I'm sitting there going, I know what's going to happen next. Sure enough, picks up his cell phone, and the only blessing is, in Cuba, you can't buy anything like cell phone minutes, so every conversation only takes five seconds. And so I was so thankful that they don't actually have like government infrastructure where you can talk on your cell phones. So he picks up the cell phone, and he's still trying to wipe it with his elbow, talking on the phone. The person, the passenger, turns around and says to me, do you see the rain? I'm like, what kind of bizarre world am I in? You can't not see the rain except for the fog on the inside of the windshield. Like the rain is pounding all around. Do you see the rain? Yep. And he says, we call rain the blessing of God. I didn't see that. I saw life insurance tables. <laughs> I saw hydroplaning. I did not see the blessing of God. See, we can, we can see but not see. Or our framework can be such that we, we see and interpret in a particular way, but we miss what, what other people see. It was very hot there. It was very, very, very dry. And so I can see, and even for us, frankly, even this summer here in Ontario, even we should be able to appreciate that rain is the blessing of God. It is a lifeline. And so for him to turn around and say, we call, you see the rain. The truth is, I remember, I, it really struck me, I thought, no, I, I, I saw the water, but I didn't see the blessing of God. But he's right. It was the blessing of God. That's exactly what's going on here. You you see, but do you get it? You see the event, but do you interpret it properly? You see that all of the miracles, all of the signs of Jesus are designed to point you beyond themselves to the great reality of God. You're supposed to see past what he does to who he is, past his power to putting your trust in him. But obviously there were a whole lot of people who saw what he did, but didn't get it. They were even willing to ascribe the finger of God to the work of the devil. And then Jesus says that, you know, you can, a demon can come out of someone and then go and just get more like it and come back in. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is listen, the kingdom of God is not a self-help program. You know, it's not like yo-yo dieting. It's, it's not like, well, I'll lose a lot of weight really quickly and then just bounce back up and I'm worse off than I was before. It's when Jesus shows up, there's a strong man, the devil, who has his possessions, people who he has captured. But when Jesus shows up, he's a stronger man. And Jesus defeats the strong man and liberates his possessions in the power of the finger of God. And Jesus here is saying, yeah, you know, your, your self-help programs, you might end up worse off in the end than you were at the beginning. But when the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. When I cast out the evil spirit, it's not coming back because of my greater power. 
There's a woman who's listening to this and mightily impressed, and she calls out, because Jesus is a great son, which would be a great honor and joy to his mother. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Now, Luke, as we know, tells the story of women. He focuses more on the narrative of women more than any of the other gospel writers. Luke chapter 1 and 2, there's an enormous focus on Elizabeth and Mary. And so we know how richly blessed Mary is. We know how special it is that the Holy Spirit overshadows her, like the glory of God overshadowing the tabernacle in Exodus 40. We know how unique it is for her to be the physical mother of the Son of God incarnate. The second person in the Trinity's physical body nourished by her womb, in her womb, nourished by her blood, nourished by her physical frame, and for her to give birth to the Son of God, the Son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all, to hold him and, and to nurse him and to hear his first words, to see his first steps, and all of the blessing that it would be to have Jesus in your house and home. And make no mistake, Mary is the most blessed mother who has ever lived. And Jesus' response is, oh no, no you've misunderstood. You see, but you don't see. It is blessed to be my mother. But far greater than to be the woman who gave me birth is to be the person who hears the word of God and obeys it. Someone who sees and gets it. Someone who puts my words into practice. That's an incredible thing. Uh, to stop and to realize and to think that for you, I mean, in all the Christmas narratives and all the plays and all the, the rest that we think about Mary, and I know that sometimes we're sort of reactive against sort of the, the Roman Catholic Mariology, but, but there's no doubt Mary is a very special person. She is very unique. Uh, she is highly blessed among all women. And yet anyone who hears the word of God and obeys it is more blessed than her. And so those are your choices. Frankly, you will never be your own master. You will either be someone who listens to the word of the devil and lives your life his way, or you will listen to the word of Jesus and live your life his way. But as Jesus says in this text, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. So there are two choices and no third position in the middle. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. And the glorious thing about this is that Jesus is stronger than the devil. Jesus has more power than Satan. Jesus has come to liberate the captives of the strong man and set them free. If only God gives us the grace to see. And that's our prayer. May, may he do that in our own hearts. May he allow us to see his work all around us. May he help us to listen to Jesus Christ, to be that richly blessed, to hear the word of God and to obey it. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in our closing song.